Hey, what's going on, guys? This is James Brickstoney, a.k.a. Deputy Jesse Holcomb of Twin Peaks Season 3, The Return. And you're listening to Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen, your host. Enjoy, my friends, and I'll see you on there. Hello, my friends. I'll see you again in twenty five years. Meanwhile, hi, friends and listeners. You are listening to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, your connection to the heart of Hollywood. And as the title says, Beyond. I am your host, Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening. It's wonderful to have you all here today. Thank you. Well, I would like to encourage all of you listening today to please, by all means, feel free to have all the cherry pie and damn good coffee that you wish. It's okay to do so because my guest today is James Grigsoni, who portrayed Deputy Jesse Holcomb on Showtime's Twin Peaks, The Return, directed by the master filmmaker David Lynch. The results being nothing short of an artistic achievement that is absolutely extraordinary and visionary. James is here to share his filming experience on Twin Peaks, as well as his own artistic journey that I have learned is very much full of variety and personal growth. This is going to be a lot of fun. James Grixoni, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, my friend. Hey, what's going on? How are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing amazing. It's summertime. It's a beautiful day outside here in Seattle. And uh, yeah, I'm just really happy to be on here and get a chance to talk about Twin Peaks and just Hollywood. And beyond. That's right. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again for being here. And where are you actually joining me from today? Yeah, so I'm actually coming from downtown Seattle, um, Pacific Northwest. If anybody knows Twin Peaks uh, listening to this, it's uh, probably about 45 minutes away from uh, Suquamish Falls, uh, Mount Side, and basically. Uh, where the Tweets Cafe was. Everything Twin Peaks is just in the mountains about 45 minutes away from me. Very nice. And is this where you are from? Yeah, born and raised uh, West Seattle, Alki Beach, to be more specific. A very beautiful, if not the most beautiful place in all of Seattle, Washington. Wow. 
Well, it's yeah. so nice to have you here. I'm all the way over across the country in Cincinnati, Ohio. So there's a, a few Yo, miles my, between us. <laughs> my girlfriend's from uh, my girlfriend's from Cleveland, and so yeah, mad love out to uh, Ohio and everyone out there in Cincinnati, Cleveland. The works, man. Well, thank you very much, and and you're correct. Mm-hmm. You're not too far from. <laughs> the town of Twin Peaks itself, are you, when you think about no. it? <laughs> yeah, no, just a hop, skip, and jump away. And, um, you know, what's funny, too, is I actually grew up, um, so I grew up in, in West Seattle, but I would go up to Snoqualmie Falls to go golf with my dad when I was a kid, and we would listen to, like, you know, the police and David Bowie and The Who and Led Zeppelin. We would just be driving through these mountains. And there's this very, very, very deep love and romanticism that I have for those mountains up there. And I, you know, I used to also go and like try and, you know, chase girls and whatnot over, you know, the towns around there. And there's just this very, very deep love and wounded feeling I have for that area. And so when I subsequently got cast on the show and we went up there, I was just like, whoa, this is meant to be, man. This is like such a vibrant place up here in the mountains. It was just a real honor to get to return to that place to do my craft and to be an actor and do what I love to do. That is amazing when you think about it. I'm wondering, though, did you ever live in Los Angeles or have you always stayed where you are today? That's a great question. Um, In my early 20s, I... In my early 20s, I got out of a relationship that I was in up here in Seattle. I mean, mind you, I was still doing a lot of acting and marketing. It's kind of the thing I was, I was vibing on. And, yeah, I got out of this relationship, and I was heartbroken. And so I was either going to move to Australia and be a blackjack dealer, or I got a phone call uh, from a film that wanted to hire me as a drummer in Philadelphia, and this movie was called The Boxy Boy. And I was like, wait a minute. Okay, yeah, I'm, I, I play drums and I want to go be in a punk rock band for a summer. I'll just go do that. And so I flew out to Philly and uh, we shot this movie, which kind of ended up just being three months of me and three other dudes just traveling around playing punk rock music in Philadelphia, New Jersey, uh, which anyone, if anyone has ever done that, I don't even need to explain the vibe and just the story that comes with that experience because that was just an insane experience. And then after that film um, got done wrapping, I spent a little bit of time kind of traveling around and picking up projects where I could. And Los Angeles, uh, yeah, there was a couple like shorts. And then I actually went down there to do marketing um, for a couple companies down in Los Angeles. And when I was down there, L.A. to me, L.A. to me is like, it's the epicenter. It's the, you know, it's the epitome of the entertainment industry. But me as an individual, I kind of observe it as it's too big. Um, And that's kind of my experience with Los Angeles was like up here in Seattle, maybe it's me and one other 100 other people that look just like me that are trying for these roles. And in L.A., it's you and 100,000 people who look like you that are wanting to get these roles. And so I basically had to sit down and listen to my heart and really kind of have to think about like, do I want to jump into the grinder? Do I want to jump into the machine and possibly get eaten alive and 
maybe hit that 0.001% of making it big, baby? Or do I stay in Seattle, work on the multifaceted, you know, artistic self that is me, and then maybe, just maybe, open myself up to the universe and these experiences to come into my life? And I started practicing yoga and meditation. And within that, uh, literally, I got this, this audition. And they didn't tell me what it was for. And I went in, I did it, and lo and behold, it was Twin Peaks. And so uh, the universe really has a way of working out for you if you open yourself up to it. And that's one thing I'm learning. It sure does. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yeah, man. Um, and that's the thing, too. It's really funny, you know, this whole metaphysical concept that I just spoke on and then getting hired by David Lynch, who is like, the master of the metaphysical and the master of the abstract imaginary. And so it was really cool just to get to work with him and, you know, study him, not just as a director, but as a human being and really understand that like he does resonate in this deeper consciousness of meditation and uh, creativity. So, yeah, I was like, whoa, I can't believe I just met this guy and got to kind of learn from him. Well, that is just fantastic, especially under the circumstances like you described so well. Uh, how did your interest in acting first take shape for you? Is there any particular <laughs> moment, or was it more like a process, so to speak? Man, that's a really good question. Well, thank um, you. I feel, like you've done, I feel like you've done this before. <laughs> uh, uh, just a few times. <laughs> yeah, 101 times. Right? That's right, um, my friend. So, I, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm a product of the, you know, the Bart Simpson era, uh, you know, the, that whole just young, hyperactive troublemaker of a kid, which was me. <laughs> um, you know, I was born and diagnosed with ADHD at the age of three. And I've always just been a hyper, hyper, hyper energetic individual. And I started getting in trouble at school. Uh, I think the lowest GPA I ever had was 1.0 and not because I was dumb. It's just because I didn't care. And, you know, I, I was getting in trouble all the time. And finally, my mom sat me down and she was like, what can I do to get you on track? <clears throat> and I was like, well, I want to be Jim Carrey. I want to be Robert De Niro. Very two contrasting performers. But I was like, this is what I want to be. And my father, he, uh, he found out that I, I was like, okay, I want to do this. And there was a community theater in West Seattle uh, called Arts West Theater. It was a conservatory for the arts for uh, youth. And in that, uh, my dad was like, I'd like you to audition for this and see what we can do. And the first musical I ever auditioned for was Susicle the Musical. And I got the role of the Grinch. It's a very small role, community theater. And it was so funny, man. Um, this is like the actor's life. Going in and auditioning for The Grinch in community theater, I was so nervous. I got sick and threw open a trash can right outside of the audition. And like, that oh, just wow. shows that the buddy, yeah, the butterflies, man. It's the sure. butterflies. They were kicking in, uh, weren't they? <laughs> dude, yeah. And the whole, you know, the whole time you're like, I got this character. I got this character. The Grinch, man. I got this. And then you go walk in the room and all of a sudden all that leaves because your nervous system is like, oh, my God. Um, but I did it. 
I got the role. And, you know, the rest is history, man. I spent five years at that conservatory um, doing Sue School the Musical, a chorus line, cabaret, and hair. Uh, hair being my all-time, all-time favorite musical, rock musical of the 60s, which just phenomenal. If anyone ever wants to check that out, you should. A lot of uh, mirrored kind of things of what's happening in today's society. But then I finished up at Arts West, <clears throat> which is like where my heart was. And then all of a sudden I started doing uh, professional theater and around Seattle. I got to play Peter Pan. and um, I got into Japanese puppet theater for a minute. And, you know, I was about 20, 20, 2021. 20, and I started realizing, I was like, yo, theater, for as much as I love it, I'm also a young man and I need to make money and theater doesn't pay a whole lot. Unfortunately, um, not by the fault of the theater. It's just the way the world is. And so then I started looking around and I was like, well, how can I keep acting? You know, how can I keep making money at this? And, um, dude, it was funny. I was working construction and I, uh, got a random audition and I went in, I did the audition, and I didn't get it, but the casting director really liked me. And about a month later, I got a call from the casting director, and she was like, Toby McGuire, the guy that played Spider-Man, uh, is doing a film in Seattle, and he needs a body double. Uh, and you look just like him. And so do you want to get paid to just follow Toby McGuire around on a film set and just stand in for him whenever he needs it? And, you know, naturally, I was like, oh, hell no. No, I'm just joking. I was like, yeah, man, I'm there, baby. <laughs> uh, that was like a dream come true. Sure. And so then that's kind of where I, that's where I entered the film industry was a really, really lucky opportunity to follow around, you know, an A-lister, a guy that kind of knocked off the contemporary superhero genre films. Um, and I learned a whole bunch. And. After that, then, you know, another film, another film, and another film. And, you know, it was actually funny. I was actually thinking about quitting being an actor um, right before Twin Peaks fell on my lap. And I'm looking at my girlfriend, and I get this call, and it's like, we want you to do the center of this audition, but we can't tell you what it's for. And um, I, I look at my girlfriend, and I was like, man, screw this. I'm tired of, you know, tap dancing in front of people that don't even know my name. Like, this industry is so relentless, and I'm getting a little bit older and just, like, over it, man. And she's like, yo, just go to this one last audition. Just this last one. Just go. I roll my eyes, and I'm like, all right, all right. And um, I end up going. And lo and behold, it turned out to be Twin Peaks. <laughs> oh, wow. like, yeah, it was just such, cause, yeah, it was just such a weird experience. Because the whole time I thought I was auditioning for like a Ford commercial that it was like, maybe it was a new, new Ford that they uh, didn't want the world to know about. And then the casting director, after my uh, interview, the casting director was like, oh, I think you'd be really good for the deputy. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't think this is for a car commercial. Um, yeah, and then like a week a week later, I got like a phone call, and they were like, yeah, you're playing Deputy Jesse Holcomb on Twin Peaks, The Return. And dude, I about, I about exploded, man. I called my mom. 
she started crying. <laughs> it's just a lot of fun. Man. Oh wow, it's a good time. Yeah. That's very surreal when you consider the fact that maybe you were thinking, okay, one more time, one more time, one more try here, and it would turn out to be a much bigger project than you originally anticipated, and one that involves Ever, yeah. no less David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, and it's it's funny. I grew up again, you know, a Simpsons reference. I grew up watching The Simpsons all the time when I was a kid. And my father, which, uh, you know, and in The Simpsons, you, you get all these kind of references and, uh, of David Lynch and Twin Peaks, <clears throat> like in Who Shot, Who Shot Mr. Burns. Lisa comes out with the card and is talking backwards. And the whole time I'm watching that, I was like, I don't understand. You know, as a kid. Um, and my dad, my dad really, he encouraged me to watch a lot of films when I was really young. And I maybe, maybe they were or not appropriate for my age, but like, you know, alien and this, uh, and jaws. And, mm-hmm. um, I really wanted to watch the exorcist. I'm really glad he kept that away from me at that age. Otherwise I probably wouldn't have slept for months. Um, but he would really show me these, these, these really well done films. And to be honest, the one real reference to David Lynch that I had was doomed. And contrary to a lot of popular opinion, I absolutely loved that film. Uh, just every, mostly the sand worms, because as a kid, you're watching these giant worms coming out of sand. You're just oh, like, oh, yes. Fascinating. So imaginative. Yeah. Yeah. And so David Lynch to me was always kind of an individual floating off in the side wings of someone who I know, I know his work, but I was always focused on like the Martin Scorsese's, uh, the Steven Spielberg's, even the Farley brothers. I thought they were great at comedy. And then as time went on, uh, Stanley Kubrick has become my all-time favorite director. He was like this guy that I really wish stuck around uh, so I could work with him. And then it was funny. I was watching a little documentary about Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. And one of the things that I thought was really cool was Stanley Kubrick, um, I think, and don't quote me on this, but I think he watched Elephant Man. And he wanted to relay to David Lynch that he was really proud of that film that he watched. It good, you know, like good job, David. Like you made a hell of a film. And so, looking at that, really kind of being like, oh, I, I kind of feel like Stanley Kubrick sort of passed a, a torch off to David, a true filmmaker handing the torch off to another true filmmaker. And for me to work with that individual. Um, I mean, my man, as, as like a, a creative individual, as an artist and an aspiring actor, it's you're literally striking oil, striking gold. And so it was one of those things that was like, I felt this incredibly deep, deep connection to the era of film that I wanted to pursue. And I got it. So it sounds like you had a lot of influence from these filmmakers and these films that you got to see at a young age, they had a lasting impression on you. Yeah. Well, it's the imagination. It's the imagination of cinema. Um, And I I definitely speak on the idea of the era of film that I wanted to pursue. Because I, I, I know, you know, and I'm sure you still watch films. It's like we are entering a new realm where the two, two and a half hour narrative 
may or may not be existing as we move forward into this, you know, short attention span. Uh, the narrative isn't as important as maybe the the person that you're looking at the individual's life. Like the whole method of storytelling is is changing. And uh, again, I'm a guy that can still sit down and watch Godfather one and two, not three, but one and two, <laughs> and I can sit there and still watch the you know the entire film. And so that's the era of filmmaking that I'm talking about. Is is basically the kind of this stage screen version and this massive amount of imagination mixed with practical effects and soundtrack and just this beautiful orchestra of imagery and sound. And that is like my definition of what film is, you know, and that's what I dreamt about doing. And I still dream about it. It's still in my heart, you know. What a wonderful description. You know, uh, I grew up in the 80s, like I like to tell people. I was actually born in the 70s, but as far as officially growing up, it's basically the 80s. And I have to tell you, I was listening to you. I completely connected to all that you had to say because, yes, imagination was in full supply at the cinema. There was just so much variety. There was so much depth. And your description is perfect, spot on. And also, these films made you feel something. Yeah. You know, they made you feel emotion. Thought-provoking. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Excellent description. Thought-provoking. Well, and, and to the, you know, again, because I, I, love, I love psychology. I love the spirit. I love consciousness. Um, and I love film. And it's interesting because I also feel like there, you know, there were movies maybe about 15, maybe about 20, 30 years ago that really, I feel like really spoke on uh, deeper topics than what a lot of film these days speaks on. I, I really have to commend, uh, however, I really have to commend people of color and women and even trans people who are really starting to take the center stage of pushing these new narratives out because I feel like those are incredibly important as well as, say, for instance, you see a white guy, just a regular white dude, going about a story and it's like, okay, we've seen this a million times, but say you have like a, a black trans person going through the same narrative that will open up so many different stories that they'll take the same story and completely change it and show it into a new filter, which I think is really a very appropriate and a very exciting time to watch uh, movies these days and movies for people that have different voices. But if you go back about 30 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, and you mentioned the 80s, my man, and the 80s to me was like phenomenal filmmaking because you had the introduction of teenage angst into the 80s, as well as you also had a lot of practical effects with a lot of forward-thinking directors that pushed horror and sci-fi to just all new levels, man. Like, dude... Uh, the thing that was, I think that was late seventies, early eighties, but, uh, yes. John Carpenter's the thing I can still mm -hmm. watch that movie and be completely disturbed by it. Oh yeah. And that just shows, that just shows like that's, you know, the, the magic of that era of cinema. Well, you hit it on the uh, nail there. Um, you're, you're correct. Uh, as far as the, you know, teen dilemma, 
or teen issues. I mean, sure, don't get me wrong. There was always those films that were just about partying, having fun, okay? <laughs> but you know what? That yeah. was a part of the decade. I can say growing up, that was a part of the mindset. But there was this other part where people were really trying to figure themselves out and trying to yes, understand yeah. friendships and relationships. And at the time, in particular, all these social classes, for example, that The Breakfast Club, uh, even today, yeah. I just am, uh, talk about uh, just really a film of, of pure, deep insight is The Breakfast Club because he nailed it on the head with all of these characters representing a class at high schools. Who was the director of that movie? John, John Hughes. Hughes. Yes. Okay, so John Hughes. I think John Hughes really took teenagers and dove really deep into the humanizing of them and, like, really yes. speaking on, again, like you said, the angst. Um, and, I mean, I don't remember seeing that any other time before the 80s. I was actually just thinking about the Andy Griffith show, and how little Ron Howard, like the only other thing I can think about a kid going through crap is uh, little Ron Howard eating too many green apples and getting a stomachache. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay. But like, yeah, what John Hughes did where, you know, he created a conversation about youth in the capitalistic sense. And, you know, a teenager wasn't always a teenager and won't always be a teenager. Like that era of just being able to be a kid and to explore that. I think that that was a really interesting time, the eighties, nineties and up to now. And John Hughes really kind of solidified the foundation for the conversation of what it's like to be young. He sure did. And I'll tell you what, I had a bicycle. It wasn't a 10 speed or even a three speed. It was just a good old huffy bicycle, and I used to ride it everywhere. But one of the places was the local video store, and on the weekends or during the summer, I was often known as going there and getting three to five for the weekend and, and, and riding my bicycle back, you know, with my bag of treasures. So, uh, What video store? Well, you remember? I, I, I was a member of about, I would say, at least four or five. <laughs> wow, <laughs> because man, some right stores on. would not have as much maybe selection in one area, and then the other would have, you know, more of that area, and then others would just have more new releases. So I made sure, but for example, Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, and the Independent. Hollywood Video. <laughs> Hollywood Video. <laughs> Dude, that was me. I don't, I barely hear that name anymore because everybody always like Blockbuster. Remember yes. Blockbuster? And I'm like, man, I remember seeing, I remember seeing a castle of Titanic VHS tapes oh in God. Hollywood video. Yes, and my mom, they were my huge. mom's driving me there. Yeah, at like it was at like <laughs> nine thirty, right when they opened. She's like, I gotta buy Titanic. <laughs> I'm like, all right, man. I'll be over there in the animation section. <laughs> You, well, then yeah, you, miss, you've got to experience that. You remember the stickers that said, be kind, rewind? <laughs> rewind, yep. Well, that's cool, too, because, you know, back in the day, it's like, also, you know, with going to the movie theater, it's like, you have to stand up, you have to walk out of your house, get in your car or walk, and then go to a place. And if it's the movie theater, it's the whole experience of, like, yes. going into the theater, sitting down, having it be dark, and then the lights coming up. And that's just the, again, it's like, that's the, that was like the golden era of that experience. And then, then, you know, again, the movie, the video store, 
it's just so funny where it's like now we have thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of selections, but going to the movie store still feels more magical back then where it's like, okay, maybe, you know, they're out of this film and like, damn, I got to come back next week. You know, it's just much more of an experiential process, more, enga- more engaging. Well, you know, James, was this an experience that would, that, that often happened for you? I can't tell you how many times I have left, you know, the cinema and, and when you step outside and let's say it's in the afternoon and that sun's glaring out there, it, it, it's just like a, a wave of emotions always floods over me. And I'm just instantly thinking about the experience I went through and how it's broadening my view of the world. Uh, you know, what, whatever it was about the film that's speaking to me or, or what these characters went through. I've always liked that, <laughs> that after effect feeling when I walk out of the, the movies. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. stays with me uh, most of the time, especially if it's a really good film or powerful emotionally. I mean, I'll, I'll, sometimes it'll just stay with me for days. Yeah. It's funny. I'm really trying to, I'm actually trying to think of an, a situation where I was in the movie theater uh, watching a film and it, you know, my man, it's been so long since I've been able to be in a movie theater. Um, yes. but I mean, yeah, there, I mean, I'm just taken back to when the first men in black came out and my dad and I went and saw that movie. And right as soon as we walked out, there was just these, just the most insane thunder and lightning storm oh, we've ever wow. seen. And yeah, my, I remember my dad looking at me like, oh, this is pretty, this is like, this is just like the movie. Um, <laughs> but there is, there is, yeah, I mean, some of the best memories of my entire life is going and seeing a movie with my dad and then leaving the theater and then just talking about, the, you know, the movie, the morality of the movie, the way that they shot it, the cool scenes that really deeply affected me. And I mean, to be all on, you know, like, again, studying psychology and consciousness and then cinema is all entertainment is a form of, of propaganda in some sense. But if that propaganda can be directed in a way that kind of helps you solidify your moral compass or to help you think about higher resonating topics, that then that's a great form of entertainment. And I don't know. I mean, I honestly, like, I went and saw what was a Brokeback Mountain when I was uh, damn, I was like still in high school or just leaving high school. But I remember I saw that movie and Ang Lee, it was not just this kind of new age romance uh, watching Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, but my man, it, was, it was the cinematography. It was this gut-wrenching, heart-destroying like soundtrack. And that to me, again, where it kind of broke the, it broke the, the, the traditional thread of storytelling by basically making it two male cowboys, um, just to me kind of made it a little more interesting to watch. Like if I had the choice of watching The Notebook or Brokeback Mountain, for some reason I'd always go to Brokeback Mountain just because like traditional romance to me is just so mundane. Um, but I remember leaving that theater after watching that film and honestly, just like I went and bought the soundtrack, and that soundtrack just was like so beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, leaving the movie theater, not just Netflix, but leaving the movie theater 
it gives you such a rush and then it gives you a lot of things to ponder upon. And not to quote Susan Sarandon, but I'm going to quote Susan Sarandon. She said, um, movies are either going to be the greatest thing for us or the worst thing. And I think she said it differently, but I agree with her wholeheartedly. I think movies aren't just a form of storytelling. They're a form of, in a sense, kind of programming the mind of, you know, you know, here are your morals. Here's what a good person does. Here's the hero's journey. And mind you, we live in a reality. So the hero's journey doesn't always apply to what my life is going through. But the time of movies that really showed morality, like a moral character, the traditional hero, and just like really gave me these stories to just really think about. I mean, hell, man, even Alien, just to even have that idea of like, oh, there's something out there that makes human beings look like ants. And what does that do to like, that just humbles me and it makes my imagination grow because I'm just thinking what's out there. You know, and like, just, yeah, the whole imagination of it is just so amazing. Thanks for letting Absolutely. me ramble on that. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed every moment hearing that. Uh, thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, you know, before we get back to Twin Peaks, I'll, I'll share this with you. You know, with this challenging time that we're all experiencing with the pandemic, the last film I saw at the cinema, and it was just occurring, I had a feeling that this might be the last film I would be seeing for a while, and it turned out to be true. But I'm so glad I got to see it. It was The Way Back with Ben Affleck. And just like we were talking, yeah. when I left the theater, I just felt like I witnessed this story uh, up front, uh, no sugarcoating story about hope. And just when you think that you've uh, maybe you know, reached it, perhaps you haven't. You can still fall. And I just, it just stayed with me so long. But I just wanted to say I really enjoyed this conversation. So so thanks for sharing all of that with me. It's the human condition, man. If you can watch any film or any read any story that really exemplifies the human condition, as opposed to just watching Spider-Man be, beat up some alien, I think that those, like you just said, those are the kinds of stories that really resonate with me as well. So yeah, I'm right there with you. Now I'm wondering, had you ever watched Twin Peaks? Uh, the the <laughs> you know you know when it you know it aired of course on ABC for two seasons, but had you seen it on you know reruns or VHS or anything like that beforehand? My dad showed me Fire Walk with me when I was younger. <laughs> oh wow. Oh. That was your well, first yeah. exposure to Twin Peaks? Yeah. Um, and again, all the, all the pop culture references. Um, but yeah, my dad sat me down and I think, I just, I think he said, he's like, you want to see some really weird stuff? Um, and yeah, he showed me Fire Walk with me. And so I guess it's kind of, it was kind of abnormal because I didn't have any real reference as to what the hell is going on. But Again, I really love the fact that David Lynch is so random and just so out there. So, like, it kept my childhood, like, it kept my child imagination going. You know, when you would see the girl with the red club, with the red dress, with the puckered up lips, just doing weird things. Or you saw, like, uh, you know, this little kid with the long paper mache nose just running around. I'm like, who are these people? What the hell is going on? Um, but it was, it was, 
it was definitely my first introduction to, I guess, a sense of sensational cinema where like, dude, I think, I think David Lynch is a master of horror because he can just show you like a flower out in the middle of a beautiful meadow and a bee landing on it. But as soon as that bee lands on it, a woman is screaming bloody murder out of nowhere. And it just totally disjars your whole consciousness from that experience. And that's what watching Fire Walk With Me was a lot of like, because you see the death of Laura Palmer in that show. And I just remember the way that David would work with soundtrack um, completely tripped me out. And I think, too, funny enough, man, um, there was a little bit of, I think, cunnilingus or fellatio happening in that um, movie with Laura Palmer underneath a table. And it's so funny being a kid because, you know, I'm watching that and I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> my dad, my dad, just, we'll fast forward through this part. Let's just but, get uh, past this scene. <laughs> yeah, let's pick just get up past this scene and we'll watch the murder scene. How does the murder scene? <laughs> we'll watch that. <laughs> um, but yeah, man. And so a lot of it as a kid was like not really understanding what I was watching, but I also sure. knew that they were filming, they were filming it in the Pacific Northwest. And so there was just a lot of like, oh, they're filming it in my hometown. And then just, again, with, like, the visualization of his work, it was very intriguing. But, yeah, as a kid, you have I mean, maybe kids know what he's trying to say. But, yeah, as a kid, my personal experience, I was just like, whoa, this is a trippy, trippy show. I'll tell you what. I really like the connection of Fire Walk With Me with uh, Showtime's, you know, uh, the return of Twin Peaks on Showtime because there is a lot of references from Fire Walk With Me throughout that mm-hmm. series. And I was very impressed and intrigued about that. But you're so right. Uh, that film is is truly fascinating. And isn't it something, we, you know, when you think about Fire Walk With Me is that David had a way of, of creating emotion and making it epic. Like, Laura's struggles were epic. Uh, her relationships were epic epic and his his way of using props or like you described you described it perfectly you know with the bee and the flower how he uses his surroundings for example remember the painting on the wall in laura's room and later on oh my god yes the uh, you know with the door and then the angel and you know he was he's just so good with atmosphere it always. I just got. Goose, I just got goosebumps thinking about that scene because I remember we, my girlfriend and I watched that not too long ago, and she was like, "This is terrifying," and yeah, it is. And you don't even know what's really happening, but it's this—it's the sense he gives you. He gives you. He knows so well how to orchestrate unease and just being able to dance between, you know, joy and complete disparity, using soundtrack and using. Um, the way he films. I think he's a master of sound. And I never really understood sound design until I worked with him and I watched his work because I'm a huge, you know, I'm a writer and I'm a, a aspiring filmmaker and my favorite genre is horror. And so to watch him again, like basically show a, like a beautiful woman and then cut to you know, the sound of a chainsaw, like just going through a tree and that violent aggression. It just, it did so much for me. And it did again, it invokes the imagination. You can do so much with sound. 
Yeah. Well, that's very observant of you. I really applaud you for that because, yes, I mean, when you really think about it, his his approach with sound is just it is so effective. So that that is wonderful that you mentioned it. And I thought I would just mention real quick before we get to your experience on Twin Peaks. You know, mm-hmm. the the beginning part of Fire Walk With Me, isn't it a nice slow cooker? Uh, I mean, yes, you start off with this horrifying moment, but then we kind of like, we're trying to figure out how this is going to go with Chris Isaac and Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland. I just found yeah. it all so well done. Well, and you also, you know, when I was watching that when I was a kid, I knew Kiefer Sutherland. I, I like Kiefer Sutherland. And now I like Chris Isaac. I think Chris Isaac is awesome. Yes. But um, it's really funny because when I was a kid and I was watching that, I was like, oh, Kiefer Sutherland's in this movie? And then yes. he wasn't. And then he just wasn't. And then right. it, that's another thing about the show that I think is really interesting is there's, re- like the, there's really no one player. And I guess the one player would be Laura, but she's dead. And so... Yeah, just this kind of like moving, moving through people, the people while they're on screen and while they're there, they're the stars and they're, they're, they're the, the, the point of interest. They're a whole story within themselves, but maybe it only lasts for another scene and then we move on. And so, again, like, I think there's a reason he doesn't explain why he does what he does, because it's all about invoking the audience's imagination to create their narrative. And so, you know, me sitting there as a, you know, an eight-year-old watching this show or this movie, I'm developing my own perspective. Well, my dad, who's like 40, is watching it, and he's developing his own perspective. And that's the genius of him. He's an abstract filmmaker. It's great. I got to ask, though, have, did, you watch, did you watch all of The Return? I did, yes. What did you think about it? Oh. Well, from a visionary standpoint, I mean, I just found it to be a masterpiece. I mean, some of those scenes, I mean, honestly, um, innovative. You know, and it's not just like he has nice shots. Yes, he does. But he's actually trying to be an innovator. Like he's going, let's not just make this look appealing or slick let's actually become artists and do something totally unexpected. I have to say, yeah. I'm still amazed with what he achieved from a visionary standpoint. And as far as the mystery and the storylines go, I love your description because you are correct. Many people have their own viewpoints and opinions, and I think that's the way David wanted it. But I'll tell you what. After viewing everything and really thinking about it, I just think that there is a heavy tone of something to do with the afterlife and spirits. And uh, I would, uh, this surprised me, but the more I watched it on Showtime, I wondered if Lynch was even hinting at some sort of reincarnation at times and it all just becomes this surreal experience but i love the emotion the adventure and the imagination of twin peaks and the characters such lively characters (laughs) yeah but but that's That's kind of my interpretation um you know i had people say i don't understand the scene with like the clock or in space and i'm thinking well is that really what that is or is that purgatory 
or, or is that like another part Ooh. of the afterlife? And they're like, oh, I'm going to kind of view that scene in a different way. <laughs> well, and did you, you remember episode eight with the, uh, the explosion, right? Yes. Yo, okay, so right then and there, and I won't spoil anything if no one's watched the show, but episode eight, um, not only did I feel like that that was like David Lynch doing Fantasia, where it was just all this imagery and sound, and I, I did not move from my seat for the entire hour. I was in complete like awe of what I was watching. I had no idea that that guy was going to throw that onto the people. I was just like, mm. Jesus. But I really feel like that that episode with the atom bomb really solidified this perspective that I feel like um, there was an evil that was unfounded before that time. And we are all now kind of living in a new world of where so much evil exists. And I think that there was kind of a subconscious conversation that he was trying to, you know, put into the people, fix your hearts or die. That was kind of the thing he was promoting. And I think to, it, yeah, I absolutely agree with you, kind of this dance between the spirit realm, um, reincarnation. But I will say this, the time that I felt like I understood David's work to the fullest degree is when I started meditating. When you start when you start it changed your perspective. This. Yeah. And I mean, it's like one of those things. It's like, if you want to learn how to, you know, yeah. If you want to learn how to make a film, you watch other filmmakers, but there was something about David and the work that he did that I was just like, this is on, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. So let me study, let me study David. And in that, I, I learned that he does transcendental meditation and within that, I learned that that's where he gets his creative influence is by going into a deep meditation and then recording what his sensations are. And that's when I realized, man, I was just like, that is, that's beautiful. Because when you start going into the deep, deep realms of the theta brainwave state, the dream, the dream state, there's all these abstract kind of images and influences that take, that take hold. But you can also, again, it's like you could take all that and make an arc, like a narrative arc. You can put all that into a traditional way of storytelling. And with episode eight kind of being the sort of midpoint of that story, it was, it was just jaw-dropping. And again, this idea that evil has entered the world and good has entered the world as well. But he didn't say, I don't think he said one time about good versus evil. Like, that show was not about good versus evil, like, blatantly. But there was so much of that influence. And, and the, dude, that bomb, like, the bomb sequence oh, was just like, oh, my God. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And the scariest thing I've ever seen. And isn't it something that he can also still provide humor when you may not expect it. Uh, remember the, okay, I'll just uh, imitate them if you don't mind. Oh, dude, light. yeah, do it. You got a light? Yeah. yeah. So he just kept asking them over and over, and uh, you're like, okay, this guy's very annoying, and then you realize that this is going to turn into a totally different type of scene. And boy, I'll just tell you, and then all throughout the ABC series, as you know, I mean, there was oh, just God, so yeah. much humor that 
told in ways that really hadn't been seen on television before. You know, was I'm looking at when I'm looking at my arm right now, and I, I got goosebumps. You you talking about the God of Light guy because I remember. Oh my God, dude! What a scary scene that was. Because um, and, and it's funny because all, all the woodsmen, all the actors that played those parts, are some of the loveliest individuals <laughs> you'll ever meet. But the him coming out of the dark onto that road with the uh, wife and the husband and him going up to the car and him like, you got a light. And again, the voice modulation, the way that he changed the sound, the sound, you know, design. But um, yeah, him saying that and then the woman being like, drive, drive, drive. Like, and then driving off and just this sense of like, what the hell is this thing that just came out of the darkness? And it's absolutely terrifying. And even like the code, you know, I, I forgot what the guy said, but it was like, ah, Jesus, I'm going to totally butcher it. But he's like, you know, the water runs deep in the lot of da da and all this code kind of stuff. And it's just like, I have no idea what you're saying, but I'm completely terrified right now. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, it's very unique um, filmmaking approaches that David Lynch takes and, and I'll tell you what, it, it was just an adventure. Every episode was an adventure. And I'll tell you what, my friend, you, uh, you got to be a part of the magic yourself. So you yeah. described the audition scenario. This makes me wonder then about the secrecy of the script because uh, this type of production just had to be full of, of secrets because it would just ruin a lot if things get out. You know how that is these days. There's always someone leaking something and, and I know Always, they took man. great measures. So when you got a script, did you really have any idea what was going on otherwise with storylines or filming? Um, you know, part of my French, but hell no. <laughs> That's what I thought. I, yeah, you have no idea. Um, I, I'm actually drinking from a Twin, Twin Peaks cup right now, and that was the oh, first wow. thing that I ever knew about the whole, uh, the whole script is, hey, I got a cup. <laughs> um, no, is that's so funny because yeah, they they were like you just got cast as Deputy Jesse, um, and so I didn't get a script right away, but I went home and I binged watched all of Twin Peaks, and that's when I started studying David, and then they had me go out to the east side of Seattle, Bellevue, Washington, where they were uh, uh, set up at a hotel. And then, they, then the first experience I had with them was they gave me they gave me the script, which was just my sides, and so which was just the scenes that I was in speaking, not even the full scene, just the scenes where I was speaking. And um, then they put the costume on me. They put the deputy uh, outfit on me, and it was just so badass, man. I took a photo. I didn't show anybody, but I took a photo. <laughs> And um, then I just, I remember having the script in my hand and being like, Jesus, dude, this thing is real. Like, this is a real deal now. I'm like playing with the big boys. And when I got the script, it was virtually just like, you know, two pages of this and then two pages of this and then one page of that. And I still have the original script, which is really cool. I got it framed. And, Very um, nice. 
yeah, I'm such a nerd about that kind of stuff because it's like <laughs> collect, you know, collect all these things that you've done. It's like, you know, it's awesome. I would keep and, that too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It'd be kind of dumb to throw it away or even put it on eBay <laughs> or something like that. Um, but yeah. And so it was, it was really low key um, preparing for the role. You know, me too. I was like, oh, I got to study how to be a cop. Um, I've got brothers in the military. So let me check them out. Let me kind of formulate some backstory, even though it, you know, it probably won't matter, but it does matter. It totally matters when you're performing this kind of stuff, even though people aren't really going to see the amount of work that you put into to developing the character. You just show up with the character. That's the whole point. And um, how would you describe your character? Yo, man, that's, <laughs> without giving away too much, um, I, cause I like to keep, I like to keep elements secret naturally, sure. but, uh, let's just say I really incorporated a military background into the character. Um, just because a, my, you know, my family giving me that a lot of juice, uh, to drink about that concept. And then also, you know, I'll tell you this is, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you this with a little bit of a story. And that is, you know, David takes me aside and he's like, what is it? He's like, um, I want your character to be uh, like almost like conspiracy, like there's a conspiracy going on. And so right then and there, I was like, okay, um, you even just saying that has solidified everything for me. And now I can kind of show up with this, like this look in my eyes, almost kind of like, Something's about to happen. And, you know, it really played into the parts that I was, the, it really played into the dialogue and it really played into the scenes where I was showing up. Um, almost like, again, with the contrast of storytelling, here's the scene where it's just, you know, Bobby is seeing a picture of Laura Palmer. He breaks down, starts crying. They have almost this nostalgic scene. And then I come in, pause, awkward pause, very, very mechanical looking individual, you know, to say Wally Brando's here. It's like even just that little interruption with that energy completely shifts the scene. And so for David to even just give me a couple of words to play off of was magic. And then I will also say, um, dude, if David Lynch doesn't, if he just stops directing movies, he should like, he should choreograph ballet or he should choreograph (laughs) dance because he's also such a beautiful choreographer uh, for actors, which I've never seen anyone really focus so much on like your arm goes here, your eyes stay there. Like I want you to really position your body in a way that I want you to hold that. And in me, it's like, oh, okay. Like, you know, as an actor, you're like, you know, tell me to jump, I ask how high. And he uh, really set up my, you know, he set up me as an actor to succeed in a way where I'm watching his work and I have this minimal script and I'm just scratching my head being like, how am I going to do this? And when we got on set, Dude, when we got on set, like I'll just tell you that story real quick. Sure. Was they put they put the costume on me, and this was such a crazy surreal experience. They put the costume on me, give me the gun, the gun holster, 
And then they, they take me to Tweed's Cafe. And literally, like, I have to walk across a barrier. And as I walk across a barrier, there's hundreds of people just taking, like, my picture and taking pictures of everything. And I literally, you know, man, I'm like a lower middle class dude who, like, you know, just... <laughs> I did construction, man. Like, what is happening? <laughs> and so, you know, it's like these people doing all this. I was just like, geez, this is so surreal. And then literally, I'm walking to Tweets Cafe, and there's a round table, and David's sitting at one end, and Bobby Briggs, Dana, uh, Dana Ashbrook, is sitting on the other side. And literally, David is like, Jesse, nice to see you. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I made it, baby, I made it. Um, that sounds then, just like is, him. Good impersonation. Yeah, man. man. And he, uh, and he asked me, <laughs> which was, which is really funny. He's like, all right, so do you know how to drive? And dude, I hadn't driven in like five years cause I lived downtown. And so, but my answer, yeah. <laughs> and so he gives me this whole like kind of choreographed driving scene. And the whole time he's doing that, I'm like, oh, shit, I really should have said I don't drive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we made it work, man. And But that right. whole experience of just, like, walking through that barrier to see David and Dana sitting at this table with this very iconic building behind them waiting mm-hmm. to collaborate with me was, you know, we said it before, it was humbling as all hell. And it was also the most energizing experience I've ever, uh, ever been in, man. I can imagine. And and I'm so happy for you. Yeah, very out of body. Oh, absolutely. I'm so happy that you got to experience all of this. And, uh, you know, you you spoke of Dana. What was it like to work with him by chance? Dude, that dude is the sweetest, most, he kind of reminded me of a buddy I grew up with. Uh, we also, him and I acted together when we were young. And, um, so when I, when I met Dana, I totally got this vibe of this, this buddy I grew up with, um, same kind of energy and same kind of charisma and demeanor. And, um, so right then and there, I was like, oh, this guy's really tight. And he wasn't, he wasn't like a, he wasn't like a dick at all, man. Like you work with some famous people, um, you know, I won't name names at all because that's not the kind of guy I am, but, uh, you work with some famous people where you're like, oh, I'm going to stand over here until I have to work with you. Um, you know, but Dana, Dana like, introduced me to his girlfriend or his wife and, um, you know, really was so incredibly kind. Well, that's and, nice you know, to hear. Everyone, I mean, honestly, everybody on that set, I think everybody knew what they were a part of and everybody knew what was going on. So I feel like everybody showed up with a lot of love and compassion in their hearts and you could totally feel the vibe on set. And such a talented cast. And, and, and I, I, like you just were pointing out, I think everybody knew there was something special here, obviously. And, and that's the, that's the best approach to take that kind of spirit. We're in this together. And, and uh, that's one thing that Lynch does well is that he has characters that are somehow connected and interconnected where, you know, working together is very important. And so I, here is something I'd like to ask you. You've discussed him, yeah. the filmmaker, and his impact as a filmmaker and what makes him special. Now, okay, what is it like to actually be directed by him? Well, you know, when he's about to say, you know, you know, when, you know rule film or action or however approach he takes, you know, what is that experience like? 
dude, I almost, you know, I almost wet myself when he said action the first time, man. Oh, I, I, I can like, imagine. Yeah, I was like, holy shit, we're here. Um, Is this real? <laughs> yeah, it didn't feel real at all. But um, that's very you know, understandable. That, yeah, well, that's just a great question too. On you know, oh well, thank you. I appreciate it. I I really love we, Twin Peaks, and this is just so enjoyable having you share all of this. So thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, man. He so he was a, again like David is a force of nature, and he knew how to make you feel extremely comfortable while also giving very demand precise direction. And um, I'll, I'll tell you two quick stories about that. The first sure. night I ended up, the first night I ended up working on set was a night shoot with Dana and myself. And I pull up in the car, I jump out and I say, uh, I was at big Ed's gas farm and I heard shots. Dude, and there was mm-hmm. this other line. There was this other line in there that they cut out that I was like, "Damn, I really wish you put that in there because it played into this whole conspiracy." And I kind of feel like David Lynch, not saying he's a conspiracy theorist, but I feel like David Lynch knows some really deep, deep shit that's going on in the world. And I feel like he doesn't name names, but he just knows of the energy that's going on in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I show up. I, I come out of my car. I go up to Dana and I say that line. And then David is like, okay, cool. Or, okay, cool. <laughs> and so <laughs> he, he comes up to me and he's like, I want you to keep your arm here. So let's rehearse it. And I came up and my arm was somewhere else. And he literally took my arm and he just put it on my hip. He's like, keep your arm there. You know, and mind you, I was like my first night working with him. And so I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, shit, did I mess up? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then after every take, he would be like, great work. Great, you know, great work, Jesse. Always called you by your character's name. Um, I was even noticing that with even like the old school actors. He he kept calling them by their names. And I was like, that's pretty badass. Yeah, like you're you're so immersed in the world. And it makes sense. Um, Yes. And... Well, I can now picture that. Uh, Coop, come over here. <laughs> oh, dude, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think maybe I heard him say Dana's name one time. Maybe not even that. Maybe I was just hallucinating. Wow. But um, he, so then we we did that scene, and uh, that was that was just really intense because I mean there were like there was there was there were people like looking at me and Dana and I didn't realize like the scene was kind of focused around that interaction. And there was a lot of like well-known actors that were just extras on that scene. And so I was just like, wow, that's guy, I know this guy from this movie. Why is, I have more lines than this guy. That's kind of a trip, dude. <laughs> um, and all amazing talent, you know, no, no, no diss on them, but there was just, it was just so strange to be, Again, you know, I guess the confidence in myself, it was just so strange to be in this, like, it felt like a pedestal. But then the next, the next day uh, was much more like, like, it felt like a family vibe because I'm in the sheriff's department with John Caricello, who John is such a funny, amazing, very supportive individual. Um, And I'm sitting there with John and we're doing this scene. And I didn't have any words. It was all just reaction. And so I got to really watch everybody act. 
and it was really funny because this one actress, uh, she she kept she couldn't remember her lines, and every scene she kind of kept forgetting her lines, and it was really great because you could tell she was getting or she was like upset, and she's probably feeling self conscious, and you know, like any other person, but David was just so incredibly kind about it. And I know, I know directors who will be like, why don't you know my lines? Learn my lines. And it's just like, yo, my nervous system's jacked now. So it's going to be even harder. Um, and David was just like very much like, it's okay. It's okay. You know, take it as, take, take it as you want and take it as it goes and we'll get it. Uh, and then it was funny because then he looks at me and he's like, all right, Jesse, I want you to, I want you to stare at the clock. And I don't want you, I don't want you to blink. And I want you to kind of be in this sort of dream state. Can you do that for me? And I was like, yeah, man, whatever. And uh, I'm, <laughs> I mean, yes, sir. <laughs> and he, uh, and so I'm staring and I blink. And he was like, all right, cut. Let's try it again. And I'm like, oh, it's Jesus. Because me, if like someone says don't blink, the first thing I'm going to do is blink. <laughs> you feel and, like you have to blink. Because you're thinking yeah, about it. Well, I can't blink, but I really want it, to now. <laughs> yeah, and he and so I'm clenching my toes, dude. I'm just like bite my lip, dude. Um, and I, I will not it. blink. I will not blink. <laughs> I will not blink. And, and it's funny because I'm staring. I'm staring at the clock, and I think he was like, "I only want to get you for 20 seconds or so." So I'm staring at the clock, and then I'm we go past 20 seconds, past 30 seconds, past 40 seconds, past 50, and we get to a minute. And I'm like, geez, my eyes feel like lemons just got sprayed in them. And then he's like, he's like, all right, cut. I'm just joking with you. We got that about 20 seconds in. And I was, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so he's, he's playing with me. And, um, dude, he was just so nice, man. Because, I mean, naturally, too, it's like, you know, I told you about my experience with L.A. And, you know, I just, I'm not really into the superficial um, again, with yoga and meditation, I kind of like going a little bit deeper and, you know, it was just, it was really cool to be in front of this legend. And naturally I felt a sense of insecurity and I look at him, uh, and it's funny cause I look at him and I'm just like, yo, am I like, am I, am I doing a good job? <laughs> like, am I doing it right? And he puts his hand on my shoulder and it just, he just gives me a smile and he's like, doing great. And I was like, cool, man. And then after every, well, no, after everybody wrapped, he would call that person up, put his arm around you and just be like, all right, everyone, Jesse is wrapped. And then everyone gives you an applause, Michael Horse, uh, Harry goes, and, um, you know, all these old legends, man, were just like giving you, yes. giving you an applause. And I was just like, damn. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's all a professional setting. It's about getting the work done, just like with anything. And I think that the, the thing that made it magic was just the attitude. Everybody's attitude uh, was just so supportive and just so incredibly progressive that, you know, again, I, I don't, I don't, you said you've acted, right? You're, you, you've been in Yes, I, I am also an actor and a writer. Okay, cool, man. So you get it. And, I think the, the worst thing imaginable, imaginable for me, is to be on a set where people are yelling at each other, people are so stressed out, people are just rude as all hell. Um, 
that's the worst thing imaginable because here I am doing what I love to do in a situation that is deeply uncomfortable. And Twin Peaks was the complete counter opposite to that. And mind you, I've been on a couple film sets where I feel that like, Jesus, I'm never doing this again. Um, and then Twin Peaks totally revitalized um, my relationship to this industry. To really know that like hyper successful people are also extremely kind people and very compassionate and understanding was such a beautiful experience. James, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your Twin Peaks experience and and working with David Lynch and, and also your own personal and artistic journey in and of itself was, was so interesting and I enjoyed every moment. So Thank you so much, and I thought yeah. we would conclude with um, something that you are doing that I find uh, very interesting because I also do it, and that is being a podcast host. And I wanted to give Yo, you this yeah. opportunity <laughs> to share, you know, the show and your role uh, on that show. Yo, I was just about to say, like. I was like, oh, I know we're wrapping this up, and I, I totally forgot to plug my stuff. <laughs> so thanks for giving me the stage. You probably um, wouldn't have heard about that. <laughs> like, hey, yeah, yeah, mentioned plant, dude, yeah. Um, no, so uh, during this time of the pandemic, we know that the, the entertainment industry was already changing, and now it's it's deeply changing with movie theaters, drive-ins yes. opening up all the way to how are you, how are we going to audition for stuff? How are we going to start filming things now? And that's what this podcast talks about, the production meeting. Um, so we have myself, which is coming at it with a kind of a after um, sort of a creative mentality perspective. Then we have Clint Morris, who's a force of nature, uh, the kindest gentleman I've ever met in this industry. Actually, probably the kindest guy I've ever met in this industry. Uh, Clint is exceptionally supportive, and he's made a living out of uh, doing PR, marketing, working for Disney, um, all the way to now opening up October Coast PR. And I couldn't have I couldn't have asked to find a better guy that's in my corner, who also wants to collaborate. And then third, we have Gabriel Campisi, who is a phenomenal producer based out of Las Vegas, um, and this guy is just the the biggest film nerd you'll ever meet. He loves cinema. Uh, his heart beats for storytelling, and you can tell in, in kind of the collaborations that we do. And then we get uh, pretty well-known names on, which is like, it blows me away. Um, That's great. Yeah, we get so many great talent on. I'm looking forward to listening to, you know, your show and and however many episodes are available. How many are available approximately? Um, I think right now, because what we've been doing was we were doing like two interviews a week, and now I think okay. we're starting to ramp it up to three. Okay. Um, and I want to say right now there's maybe five or six episodes out. Um, some pretty tight talent, too. Um, just a lot That's of people who make career, That's wonderful. Yeah, careers in film. And, you know, the coolest part about this podcast that I found, because I also have two features coming out um, within this year, but the cool thing that I found about this podcast is you, okay, like truly this is every talent that has come on this show that we've interviewed has said two things. 
uh, each one has said two things in each podcast that I've found, and that is relinquish your expectation and follow your passion. And all of these talents uh, have basically said like, yo, I never anticipated on getting this big. I never anticipated on making a career in cinema. I relinquished that expectation that the sense of wanting to get to point you know, Z when I'm in point mm-hmm. A, you throw that expectation out the window and then you get rooted in why your heart beats. You get rooted in why you want to do this, what your passion is. And I kid you not, man. Oh, like, wow. The, you know, I know this sounds kind of hippy dippy, but the universe and this, this energetic field really does work for you. If you set your intention, whether or not you set your intention of like, my life sucks or you set your intention of, I want to get, I, my life is great and I want to get this done. The universe is going to feed that to you. So um, it's amazing when you find out that in, no matter how many, there's 7 billion people on the planet, we all pretty much want the same thing and we all kind of think along the same lines too. So, you know, we're not so different, you and I. Well, you're right about that. And wow, I just, that really stirred my heart because uh, you know what? Just stay true to your own heart. And keep having fun. I think uh, in this day and time, have you noticed there's too many angry people and there's not enough people actually having fun anymore? Yeah, one can perceive it as terrifying. Um, And I've kind of fallen into that category as well. But I've talked talked to a few of my elders um, who are, you know, in their later age. And every one of them says, uh, this shit's going to get crazier. But at the same time, I think there's a paradigm shift and... I think that there are people who are consciously waking up to the fact that reality doesn't need to be what reality currently is. And I think that we're just transitioning into a different state of consciousness. And hopefully, hopefully this transition is for the people (laughs) and not for a small group of people. So, I mean, we'll see. But I'll tell you this, compassion is an armor. It's an armor as you walk through the world. Like I, I'll, yes. I'll sit and I'll talk to homeless people for hours and just lend them an ear. And I'll tell you one thing, not a lot of people do that. And when you sit and you talk to people who are in need, even if it's just giving, giving them your ear, they're deeply grateful for that. And so it's like, don't be afraid of people. Don't be afraid of people. We're all in this together and we're all trying to get to the same place. And so just have compassion in your heart and have a sense of understanding. Oh, that's so well said. I really commend you for that, and thank you for sharing that perspective. Well, how can folks find your show? And also, is there any social media pages or anything that you would like to share as well at this time? Yeah, so, um, well, real quick, I also have two films coming out. Uh, One is called Martin Gale, and the other is Potato Dreams of America. These are two amazing films uh, that should be dropping this year. And the podcast can be found on most uh, streaming podcasts, uh, podcast channels. I personally use Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's just because I'm an Apple guy. Um, but yeah, those should be streaming on all platforms. And um, there was another Very thing nice. Yeah. Oh, there you know, social media pages. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yo, that's funny. Because social media and I have a dysfunctional relationship. And so I ended up deleting a lot of it. But I got back my facebook my twitter and my instagram and so if you guys want to follow my journey um 
with being an artist, being a human being, and just kind of going through. I like to call myself a consciousness mixologist. I like to kind of just explore all facets of being. Um, and so if you want to follow that journey, you can find James Sony on Facebook. You can find Sony on Twitter. And then I just opened up an Instagram called Oni Jabroni. <laughs> and so uh, feel <laughs> free to check me out on those platforms. And honestly, too, if anyone's a fan of myself or anyone's a fan of Twin Peaks, feel free to drop me a line, too, and let's connect. So um, thank you so much for being fans, your whole family to me. So thank you. Thank you for being my guest today. Uh, I really appreciate all that you shared with me and the listeners today. So, so thank you, my friend. Thank you, Stephen. It's absolutely an honor and deep privilege. So I appreciate you, and um, I wish you the best of luck with everything, my friend. Okay. Thank you. Send host Stephen Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in.